Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. You know, I always used to love that song, and I still love that song, but it's going to be a COVID song for me for however much longer I live. We've used it a bunch of times on the show, and I think now some of the world weariness of that song, it's by the Neils, by the way, uh, some of the world weariness of that song uh, captures maybe the, the almost perfectly <laughs> the feelings people have as we head into March uh, of 2023. This will be three years. It is three years. It depends on when you start the clock running on all this. And that's what the show's about today, or at least it's kind of a thread that runs through the show is what's it like three years out? Uh, we're still arguing about some of the same stuff. Uh, so that's not a good sign. Uh, we're about to have the public emergency, public health emergency end. Uh, which will, I think, have some ripple effects and none of them good. Uh, But we're going to examine this from a bunch of different sides before. But we're bringing back, we're welcoming back somebody who was with us uh, a few times in the early stages of the pandemic, and that is Dr. Saskia Popescu, an infectious disease epidemiologist and assistant professor in the biodefense program within the Shah School of Policy and Government at George Mason University. Saskia, welcome back to our show. We're so glad, glad to have you with us. Hi, yeah, it's been a while. Thanks for having me. So this is sort of a time of taking stock, right? This is sort of three years, depending on, as I say, when you put the pin on the calendar. Um, and and I, you know, it's hard to look at what we've done here in the U.S. and call it an unblemished success, right? I mean, there are an awful lot of things that just didn't work the way they were supposed to. So as you begin to incorporate what you've learned and prepare to teach it, you're already doing that, I'm sure. What what things are you looking at? What are the lessons that really, you know, light up the sky for you right now? 
I think, unfortunately, we have a lot of lessons learned in the U.S. And there's going to be some from everything from science communication, you know, how we handle these complex, especially novel situations where we're communicating to the public that we have a tendency to oversimplify. And instead, we need to communicate very nuanced things like airborne versus droplet, masking, um, vaccines. And then there's really the larger issue of how the U.S. responds to infectious diseases and has sustained response. So there's the macro level, there's the micro level. And right now, I think the hardest part is that transition from a state of emergency into more of a sustained response. Right. So let's go to the, back to the first thing you said about science communication. So there were some things that were done that were potentially helpful. There was kind of a sense that kind of the publication incubation cycle uh, of research papers was maybe too slow. Preprints prints started to become more available. Uh, some paywalls went up and, and people, um, you know, at least had a chance to at least try to inform themselves. But I think we have to look at that and to amplify something that you said, too, is this stuff is complicated. And if somebody doesn't act as kind of a tour guide through the Museum of Medical Research and, and, and new fact findings, because the other aspect of this is we're trying to build a bridge and walk across it at the same time. We're trying to investigate and understand a disease in real time. Uh, and, and that's challenging, too. I feel like there needs to be a better communication and information structure than what we had here. I mean, it just and I, I don't know. Are, do you have ideas about how this could be done better? I mean, I think the biggest challenge right now is the politicization of a lot of these topics. So you're going to inherently see shifts and how they are communicated. We saw definitely a shift with when the pandemic occurred and we were under the Trump administration and now within the Biden administration. But science communication is a very somewhat new concept, I would say. It's, it shouldn't be, but we really learned in COVID-19 that you have to really engage with people who are skilled in communicating these nuanced issues. You have to involve the scientists doing it, the frontline workers, but also community engagement. And that means trusted people within the community that you can have part of that messaging structure. And more and more, I saw you know, people who had never worked in infectious disease or never worked in pandemic response suddenly telling themselves as experts and muddying a lot of these messages. And I think the hard part, especially from a science perspective, and so much of this was played out on social media, was you were having the experts having to combat misinformation and disinformation in real time <laughs> online. And it was not only exhaustive, but you were seeing some frustrations come about, some nastiness in terms of academic debates, and that made things even more confusing. So moving forward, we really need to focus on investing in science communication, addressing misinformation, but acknowledging that you don't have to dumb down the message for the public. You can say it's not a binary concept. It's not do I mask or do I not mask? It's let's talk about risk awareness, personal risk tolerance, community levels of COVID, the impact, your personal, you know, medical history, those kinds of things. And I I think that moving forward we'll start to address that. But you know, this is this was a novel situation. We were learning in real time about this and it's going to take a while for us to get it right. Right. So let me give you some concrete things and we can kind of talk through them a little bit. So this is one that came up yesterday. I was actually, I had a lot, a lot of work to do yesterday and I, we've all had that experience where you're kind of on multiple deadlines and suddenly your notifications on Twitter are just pinging and making a lot of noise. And I was looking over and there's this guy, I won't say his name, he's a, kind of a former journalist, turned into a little bit of an internet troll. And he's 
he's very kind of hyped up about certain issues relating to the pandemic. And I guess one of them is naturally inquire, acquired immunity. And he'd seen <laughs> an article in the New York Post about a piece in the British journal Lancet uh, about naturally acquired immunity and, and how it is it does confer you know pretty substantial um, protection against reinfection, hospitalization, death. Um, but he, of course, he'd read the New York Post version of this. So, I mean, I'm busy. I got the <laughs> yeah. Lancet version. I read it. And I, I was trying to explain that, well, first of all, you can't think about these things as a, like this and vaccination as an equivalent. Because to, to get the, the first one, you have to get COVID. And getting COVID is very mm-hmm. dangerous. You can die. You can wind up in the hospital. You can get long COVID. Or you can just get really freaking sick and be miserable, you know, whereas you can go and get vaccinated and you know, your, your day is essentially unchanged. Or maybe you've got a 24-hour reaction to it or something. And that, that seemed to be missing from his understanding of it. Oh, he seemed to just think, wow, if I've got COVID, I can just sort of go about my life. If I've had COVID, if I've been infected, the idea that you'd probably need to be boosted six months out, you know. But I also blame Lancet a little bit. They just put this stuff up there with no paywall. They, they, <laughs> in a way, you've got to put some big red letters on this stuff and say, yeah. you shouldn't interpret this to mean that you don't need to get vaccinated because at some point your immunity from your naturally acquired infection will wane. And it's also not a good idea to try to do it this way. I mean, you wouldn't think people would need to be told this, but I think they do. Well, and I think, you know, that's a funny point you mentioned because the joke we have in epidemiology is that when you ask us a question, we're always saying, yes, but, (laughs) you know, there's, there's never necessarily the most clear cut you know, I mentioned very binary answer, meaning, yes, you do this. And that's science for one, but how do we communicate it more effectively? And to your point, having things behind paywalls has been a very significant issue because then you have preprints, which are widely available, but haven't gone through that rigorous peer review process. And I have seen time and time again, where, you know, these rather complex, but to your point, you know, the the underlying message isn't that complex. Research studies that are done have really important messages, but they get misunderstood, misperceived, you know, through the news cycle online. And then you might have a couple of experts that try to do really good threads on Twitter. I've seen it, especially with the lab leak and COVID origin stuff at the last few few days where they try to correct it, but that doesn't necessarily get picked up. So, you know, I think one of the biggest frustrations that we're facing is how do we make the journalism science interface stronger so that that messaging is correct and not necessarily inflammatory or for clicks, because that's unfortunately what happens a lot. And also, how do we make it easier for people to identify you know, scientists that are trained and skilled to speak in this, because I have seen, to your point, you know, some folks that are giving interviews that I'm like, you, you're a nutritional epidemiologist, you should not be speaking on infectious disease issues. Um, And they're giving misinformation, and that then confuses the public. So there's a lot of pieces to it, I think it's going to take us a while to fix, but I really encourage, you know, people to know that this is an imperfect process, and we are trying to get ahead of it. Yeah, I think, and I don't know if there's any way to deal with this, but the reality is that even good responsible scientists don't sing in one 
choir about this. I mean, there are, they sing different parts oh, of in the choir, not. you know? And so <laughs> yeah. I, like, I listened to This Week in Virology, and I particularly like this, these ones where Dr. Daniel Griffin, who's a uh, clinician, and Vincent Racaniello, who is a virologist, uh, they go over stuff. But, you know, every once in a while, they'll sort of complain about how journalism, you know, has done handled this. And I always think, yeah, but like if I... First of all, you two guys don't agree about everything. You don't necessarily uh-huh. admit it all the time. But like on masks, you guys, I can tell that you guys, you two guys on masks are not in the same place. And, you know, and I just took Saskia Popescu and Angie Rasmussen and Eric Topol and Michael Osterholm and Ashish Jha and Rachel Walensky and Vincent Racaniello and put them on a continuum. They'd be in different places. You guys would be in slightly different places on some of these questions. And mm-hmm. in, a, in a way, maybe that's a thing that, needs to be communicated like just because we don't all see this exactly the same way doesn't mean uh, that shouldn't result in a state of total agnosticism about this i know i think that's 100 percent accurate i think the big piece too is that we might have different approaches and lens you know or perspectives i should say for certain topics but you know while there is a spectrum we're probably all going to fall into the same general side of it when it comes to certain things like masking or vaccines, you know, you do always have those outliers, but I think some of it really depends on how strongly you feel about a certain topic. And some of that's your background. I mean, one thing that I've consistently really tried to do is say, if we're going to discuss a topic, we need to ensure that the experts are on those calls because, you know, I can speak to my little slice of cheese, but, you know, if we're going to talk about immunity or, um, you know, I mentioned COVID origin analysis, then let's have the virologists that are doing the research involved. And that's, that spectrum can be pretty wide, but more and more, I do see that there is consensus on certain things. It's just that we're not perfectly aligned. It's just a little bit here and there. You know, it's that nuance. <laughs> right. So um, just speeding ahead for a second, on May 11th, the uh, PHE, the public health emergency, officially ends per President Biden. Um some things are going to happen as a result of this. And I would guess that one of the first things that we're going to notice is that some people are going to fall off Medicaid, some things that were free are not going to be free anymore, some co-pays are going to come back. And those are going to, in some cases, hit people who who have a lot of trouble affording what they need. Uh, and that's not only tragic for them, but it seems to me it's potentially kind of a dangerous situation for everybody if people can't get tests, can't get vaccines, can't get treatment, or think they can't because the structure has changed. And that's 100% accurate. I think the challenge that so many of us are facing and discussing right now is that you do need to move away from a state of emergency into sustained response so that this was naturally a progression that was going to have to happen. But at the same time, how do we still ensure that people have access to these things and that there is not an economic barrier to getting tests, to getting vaccines, and you know, to ensuring that they have that health coverage for COVID? And I think that's really a bigger issue that speaks to our healthcare infrastructure within the United States because you know I think about a year or two ago when we pulled back on testing availability you know we used to have those massive pop-up drive-through testing stations in, in every major city right you could just go drive through and get your COVID test or even your vaccine those went away and the big concern was all right now people don't have the kind of access to testing and we're reliant on at-home tests so we're flying blind with data now we're vastly underrepresentative of of what's actually happening in the community when it comes to COVID cases. So as that gets pulled back, you know, I definitely worry that we're not going to be getting 
the amount of data that people are less inclined to test. And one of the big things that we've seen with Omicron, especially, is that people might have symptoms and be testing negative for a day or two. You know, I myself, when I had COVID in December, tested negative for 30 hours before I finally tested positive, despite having symptoms. So we really do encourage people to test a couple of times over 48 hours to ensure that they really don't have it. And if they don't have access to those free tests and there's less incentive because they're not cheap, um, you know, and I, things like that really worry me. And I think it speaks to a bigger issue that when you pull back on that resource, you're signaling that this is no longer a public health threat, that this is no longer something that's going to be taken seriously. And we want people to still take it seriously. Yeah. And I, I mean, for all of the reasons that you just said, but also to put a pin on one of them in particular, the idea, I mean, well, let me just back up and say this. Um, and I'm kind of stealing this idea from Dr. Megan Ranney, who's about to take over the Yale School of Public Health. Um, but, um, you know, in a way, although there have been incredible economic disparities and racial disparities uh, in terms of uh, health outcomes, always in America, and, and those have continued during COVID and have fallen very hard on some of the disadvantaged communities and people, we actually saw something a little closer to equity just because there was such an incredible premium placed on making sure vaccines mm -hmm. were free and stuff like that. And, it, you know, it, it, she, she was sort of saying, look, this, the pandemic really sucked, but this one part of it sort of showed you what we could do if we really kind of followed through on some ideas about health equity. But and it's kind of disappointing. I don't see anywhere in President Biden's remarks this idea that, yeah, we, we should probably preserve as much of that part of it as we can. It, it just doesn't seem like it's it's there in his calculations. I think that's fair. And I entirely agree with Dr. Rainey's points because, you know, this was kind of um, a, a taste, you know, a tip of the iceberg, if you will, with what's possible in terms of addressing health equity. And we've shown that it is possible, but it's ultimately up to us to decide if we're going to invest in it. And I haven't seen a long-term, you know, strategy to address that. I, you know, President Biden has made health definitely a focus and health equity has been brought up several times, but really translating that to action is going to be exceedingly hard. And we've seen this time and time again in the United States that we really struggle with our health infrastructure, with health equity and ensuring that people have access and that there aren't the kind of barriers that truly do exist. So I think the hard part right now is that when we're moving away from a federal state of emergency for COVID, it's becoming more of a personal responsibility. And this is, like I said, a natural progression, but when we start to remove all of, you know, or I should say we put back on those barriers, you really have to ask, are we setting people up for success? And I'm definitely concerned that we might see significant surges, but also we're telling people that this no longer is an issue and that it's back to business as usual. Right. No, I, I feel like we're definitely going to be surges, see surges because of all the things we just talked about. So if we, we talk about going from a state of emergency to a state, state of more sustained response or going from pandemic to endemic, what... What ultimately does that mean? I mean, even that those two terms, pandemic and endemic, aren't necessarily familiar to everybody and maybe even not agreed upon by everybody. But in, in your understanding, the way that you would explain it, what do you see? What do you want to see as we make that transition? <laughs> you know, I think there's definitely been debate about if we'll move to a state of endemicy. And I think it's important to know when something's endemic, that just means that it is spreading at lower, more controlled levels. Sometimes it's seasonal. But it's not in this, you know, pandemic, high volume state. So if you think about the fact that in 
you know, the, we had the Omicron spike in the U.S. in the winter of 21 and 22, and we had a daily average of 790,000 cases. That is definitely not endemic. But now, if we're still seeing 34,000 cases a day in the United States, that's very high. So endemicy means more so low levels, we can control it, and we might see a little blip here and there, but overwhelmingly, it's not a health crisis. This is a complicated thing that you're going to see a lot of people, a lot of epidemiologists, infectious disease experts kind of going back and forth what this might look like. Part of that is because we've never dealt with a pandemic in our lifetime. This is a new situation where we're moving, you know, into more of what does living with COVID look like? And I, I, you know, I encourage people to give us a little bit of grace when it comes to some of the more public debates about that. But really, the focus is how do we encourage people to still get vaccinated, to still test, and that, you know, COVID might become one of those things that you deal with, but it is still serious. You mentioned long COVID earlier. That's a very serious thing that we're still needing to invest time and resources and to understand. And, you know, this especially worries me because there's this ideology I've gotten from folks where they don't realize that infectious diseases can actually cause long-term chronic issues. We're just starting to understand that with Ebola and COVID is definitely showing that. So now more than ever, we need to say, all right, whether, you know, we can settle on a term about if it's endemic or not, what does it actually mean to live with COVID as a continued public health infectious disease issue? All right. I'm getting into trouble with Lily Tyson for asking one, one more question because I'm supposed to move <laughs> on. But I just feel like, you know, I, I feel once again that part of the challenge is going to be achieving some clarity so that we're all kind of talking about the same thing when we talk about, just for an example, masks, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, so we've just been through this thing where there was this kind of uh, kind of mega Cochrane study about masks mm -hmm. that was really kind of a mess, you know? It, was yeah. just, it had stuff in it that from pre-COVID periods. It had stuff in it where you couldn't really tell whether people knew how to wear their masks correctly. It was just a mess. But people, and often people, some certain people within the biosciences, you know, there are certain people... Out at say Stanford or you see San Francisco, who pounced on that <laughs> and got on Twitter and said masks don't work. I told you masks didn't work. And, and, and yeah. I, you know, it's this is like a big, huge, tangled ball of yarn. This question about masks, you know, that you really have to work hard to kind of pull the threads out and say, no, there's some places where you should definitely wear a mask, or it would be a good idea if you wore a mask, and maybe you don't have to wear a mask in some of these other places. But it's hard to do it against the backdrop of all this kind of confusion and muddying of the waters. It is. And, you know, and I think the funny thing I, I was chatting with some colleagues about, it, I was like, you know, I think it's hysterical. We're having these conversations because for all the mention, the reasons you mentioned about the Cochrane review, but also to think that masks wouldn't work in a pandemic with a respiratory pathogen <laughs> is kind of comical. Right. But the, the burden the of proof should be on the right? other side. The burden of proof, you know, tell me why in the world you think a tight fitting mask wouldn't be a good idea. Exactly. And I think the thing is, though, one thing I try to always stress is that risk reduction is additive. You know, it's not just masks. It's also a lot of other moving pieces. And masks, for some reason, became one of the most controversial, politicized aspects of this. But I more and more, I've found myself and my colleagues all having the same conversation that when we're discussing some of these more nuanced things like the Cochrane Review, 
it's so important how you do that in public. Mm. And it's so important that you, we almost need to reiterate, hey, you are seeing things that would happen in conference rooms, at conferences, Mm. you know, at coffee shops, you're seeing it all played out in public. You're seeing scientists go through the scientific method process and debate things. But the truth is that, you know, something like masks to me is quite simple. It's that it's a really great barrier for respiratory illness. And to, you know, try and tell people that it doesn't really work. That really wasn't the message. I think they were trying to really reiterate that it has to be done at a population level. Mm -hmm. And that just goes to show you again, we're all a part of this and interventions require all of us to kind of step in and help. All right. Now I'm really in the doghouse, so we have to stop. But um, (laughs) Dr. Saskia Popescu is an infectious disease epidemiologist, assistant professor in the biodefense program within the Shar School of Policy and Government at George Mason University. Saskia, thank you so much again for your time. Thanks for having me. And we'll be back with stories from the pandemic. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. All right, so that the autumnal qualities of that song attracted uh, me to it for this segment we are going to talk about. First of all, before I introduce our guest, I also want to say, after you listen to this, go to your pile of newspapers on the floor or to your laptop or wherever and find the cover story from the New York Times Sunday Magazine uh, by John Mualem. Uh, it's called Three Years Later. We still don't know how to talk about what happened. Uh, it is based on the work of our guest uh, right here, and that is Ryan Hagen, a lecturer in the Department of Sociology at Columbia University and co-director of the New York City COVID-19 Oral History Mem- Memory and Narrative Archive. Ryan Hagen, welcome to our show. Thanks for having me. And so, first of all, just explain uh, the project. What did you and your collaborators set up to do or set out to do? Sure. So 
early on in the pandemic, we had a sense that the world that we'd been living in up until 2019 was kind of over. Not that society was collapsing, but that the social world that we'd all been living in, that we'd been familiar with for all of our lives, was going to be significantly different from then on. And we knew that it was really important to capture people's memories of what this pre-pandemic world was like and what it was like to navigate the first few weeks and then months of the pandemic reality, and then what it was like as people tried to struggle to make sense of it and recover afterwards. And so we applied for a grant from the National Science Foundation to set up a large longitudinal interview study uh, or an oral history project where we collected interviews from roughly 200 people in New York City to document this experience of what it meant to live through the pandemic. Right. And some of the interviews, uh, maybe most of them, I think you revisited the same person multiple times uh, to see how things had changed. And I was struck also by just the vividness with which they described their circumstances. Uh, I mean, I just like one of them, one of the quotes that I love was, we were like ants standing up on our back legs with our front legs up in the air as a meteor approached, (laughs) which I I can't think of a better description (laughs) of what was true uh, about that. But I don't know. Are there one or two little anecdotes or bits of narrative or testimony that you like to offer up to kind of indicate the vividness and the power of some of these stories? Sure. I think all of us who worked on the project and did interviews for it have a couple of moments that really stick with us. Um, And certainly the, this quote about being, you know, ants seeing a meteor approach is part of a larger constellation of stories that people were telling about what it was like inside the hospitals Mm -hmm. and hearing medical workers talk about what it was like to see the hospital system almost come apart under COVID are some of the most heartbreaking stories, I think in the archive, but also some of the most inspiring in a sense that they managed to make it through anyway. So everything from, you know, pediatricians who get pressed into service working in COVID wards uh, who are facing high levels of mortality and seeing patients die at large rates that they'd never encountered before. Um, or, you know, people who, for me, one of the stories that that sets out the, or that sticks in my mind the most is actually just a, a paramedic um, who caught COVID relatively early on uh, from a patient that they had been uh, transporting to the hospital And he just described laying on his couch and watching his stomach rise and fall like the waves of an ocean, he said, and that it was all he could do to just lie there and just kind of watch himself breathe because it was so hard to do it. And this is not a guy who got hospitalized. He made it through on his own at home, although he said that it would take, you know, 15 to 20 minutes to get up to go brush his teeth in the morning because of how fatigued he was. And these are the kinds of things that stuck with me as the experience of treating people with COVID and of having COVID um, and how the world kind of came apart for people, especially in the early days of the pandemic. Yeah. You know, uh, I think you went recently to the Edward Hopper exhibit at the Whitney. And, you know, Hopper, of course, famous for these incredibly etched portraits of of loneliness uh, and aloneness. 
And to me, reading Muallam's piece uh, about your work, that's one of the things that really kind of came through to me was how many things had to be done alone, whether it's the guy watching his stomach rise and fall or, I mean, you know, I had two people, the two people closest to me in my life were hospitalized, not, well, one of them, not initially with COVID, uh, and, but in both in very scary situations. And in the early days, you couldn't visit somebody. So those people facing possibly their death were alone in the hospital with no visitors. And, and so many things had to be done alone. The descriptions of, you know, people who just kind of simulated office environments in their houses, even changed their clothes into more formal work clothes and stuff. I mean, just all the coping with the aloneness makes you aware that that's one of the distinguishing features here. Well, and it also makes you aware of this fundamental fact of the pandemic, that it has this dual nature. It's not just a biological reality of this virus moving between people's sets of lungs, people getting hospitalized, uh, you know, people having long COVID that will be with them for years. But there's also a social aspect, a social reality to this pandemic that uh, is going to stick with us forever, basically, right? So there is an entire kind of shadow world of all of the things that didn't happen because of the lockdown and because of the pandemic, you know, parties and graduations and concerts and funerals and weddings and all the things that people couldn't do or had to do under the weirdest possible circumstances because of the nature of the pandemic. And that is going to have inevitably changed people. And it's going to have consequences that happen that unfold for, for years. And people's social networks changed. Uh, they lost touch with friends. They lost touch with acquaintances. People uh, reconfigured their social networks to concentrate on people who were closest to them, who, may, who meant the most to them, and they discarded social ties that they only kind of peripherally kept or kept out of obligation. Or they just lost touch with people that they wanted to be friends with but never had a chance because they didn't uh, have a chance to go out and see each other in kind of casual settings in all of the places that we used to see each other before the pandemic. Yeah, there's a there's a Rupert Holmes song called "The People You Never Get to Love," um, uh -huh. and that kind of you know you're you're kind of expressing that. So um, one of the terms that's come up uh, in connection with your findings and with these testimonies, and I think it maybe came up at a conference, is a term that a lot of us learned in our freshman sociology class uh, from mm -hmm. via Emil Durkheim. Anomi, anomi kind of means normlessness, kind of a point where. You, you're trying to play a game that you don't know the rules of, that society becomes a game whose rules are not consistently spelled out. And so one's own desire to conform, to be uh, to be in the right place, doing the right thing and saying the right thing becomes impossible because it's just not there anymore. That, that, that set, that rule set isn't there. And I, I don't know, how do you re react to that? How did you see that uh, in, in what you collected? So... There's two kind of sides to enemy. The first side that we definitely saw is that this sense of normlessness and sense of not being regulated by other people. Um, so, you know, early on in the pandemic, uh, people were at home all the time or, or even when they went out into public, if they were essential workers or if you could just go outside, you didn't see people in the same way. You didn't interact with them as closely as you used to. And so what we normally do in the social world is that we act, we behave with people and um, we have to correct our actions because, you know, you like people tell you to get out of the way when you get onto the subway or you, you know, stand left on the on the escalator and walk right and do all of those things. And people were just not used to doing that kind of stuff anymore because they were at home or they were not interacting with people. And so what we started seeing in the interviews was this sort of like life 
that came into people where they were telling us things like, you know, I'm when this is over, I'm not going to let people push me around anymore. I'm going to stand up for myself more. I'm going to um, I'm going to kind of live the life I want to live. Which on the one hand was really encouraging and, and 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 you know inspiring in a way because people were finding the strength inside of themselves, um, but what that also meant was that when people did reemerge into the world and encountered a world full of people who were all ready to stand up for themselves and weren't used to uh, negotiating what it meant to be in public with other people, that's why we one of the reasons that we saw all of this you know conflict and hostility and public anger in airplanes and all over the public life where people were just not used to being regulated and not used to having to deal with the norms of social life. And of course, the other aspect of enemy is that living with people and interacting with them gives you access to a whole different plane of social reality. Being able to have norms and knowing how to behave isn't just a guide through life. It's a whole different kind of transcendent reality is what Durkheim is telling us. And so when we're talking about loneliness and what it meant to be stuck at home alone, it deprived people of an entire universe of emotions and ways of acting and thinking and seeing and and um, experiencing the world that really was um, a pressure for people to not be able to do that in their lives. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> There's so much to say about this, but one of the fascinating things to me about your project is that I think it highlights a problem that the rest of us are having, which is, in fact, kind of creating and sustaining a narrative. I mean, I I talk on the radio every day, and I'm a writer, too. I write columns and stuff. I'm not really sure that I could very easily sit down in a room and type out 100 pages about what the last three years were. I, I, it's almost like I've been in a place where there was you couldn't even make an X on the wall to mark the passage of a day. It just it didn't all, all the ways that we order time and the ways in which we organize our memories to correspond to certain events and things that we do. So ma- so many things change so radically that I, I think just the idea of sustaining a story, being able to tell the story, what happened to you in the last three years? It's that's not an easy question to answer anymore and and it seemed as though maybe the people well you should just respond to that just say what you think about that yeah well i mean this is another one of those social realities of the pandemic is that we have by and large um all had to come up with our own interpretation and memory of what the pandemic was like and the fact that we can't all agree on that and that we have different interpretations of what happened to us and what happened to people who were around us and, um, you know, what the big institutions in society did or didn't do during the pandemic. The fact that we don't all agree on that is going to have consequences for the way that American history unfolds for the next many years. It has impact on how people uh, react when the government asks them to do things. It uh, has an impact on how people trust big institutions like science and academia. Um, and it has, you know, implications for the way that people trust other people in their community. And so this idea of what it means to build a narrative and make sense of the of the pandemic is one of the big questions that I came into this product with, which was how are people going to make sense of this? Um, and so the fact that, you know, we were talking about earlier on the show, you were talking about how it's hard for scientists to come to a consensus on certain things like masking or, or you know, the hard questions of, of figuring out science. Well, you know, multiply that by 350 million in people in society all trying to make sense of an experience that they didn't all experience the same way together. 
that complicates the problem. Yeah, you know, my my partner, uh, the woman that I live with, uh, went into the hospital for another thing. And then while in the hospital, caught COVID and there was just cascading complications. This is well before there were effective treatments or vaccines or anything like that and wound up in the hospital for 10 and a a half months uh, before she came back out. And so during that time, she was sort of in and out of coherence and she'd be intubated and, you know, and put on ventilators and stuff like that. And so she's got all these kind of disconnects, and we in the family refer to that. We we will say to her that that was while you were sleeping. While you were sleeping has come to be the term for those ten and a half months. Uh, mm-hmm. So yes, yeah, some, something something happened while you were sleeping. But in a way, we've all been in that kind of timeless dream state, right? There's just a way in which it's not quite as as, as extreme as her experience. But I feel like yeah, our ability to keep track of time and and to mark time uh, has been radically affected. Oh, absolutely. Because one of the ways that we mark time is socially. We, you know, we have work weeks and we have weekends. And, you know, under the lockdowns, weekends didn't really exist in the same way. People didn't have parades. They didn't have, um, you know, big public holidays. Um, The sports season was all amiss. Like all of these things that we use to mark the passage of time sort of evaporated for people for a long time. And the pandemic went on for long enough that as people were trying, were starting to come out of it and as the lockdowns relaxed and as sort of quote unquote normal life began to resume, people had trouble determining whether or not the ways that they were different were because they were a year or two years older than they were when this started or because something about the world had changed. Right. We're going to have to stop there, but this is fascinating okay. <laughs> stuff. People should read the cover story uh, in the New York Times Sunday Magazine, uh, and you will there meet in another way Ryan Hagen, our guest, lecturer in the Department of Sociology at Columbia, co-director of the New York City COVID-19 Oral History, Memory, and Narrative Archive. We're going to take a break. We're going to come back. We're going to talk to a novelist who had to confront a lot of these questions in a novel about a doctor. All right. Uh, we are back. Uh, it is time to say some thank yous. Uh, first to Kat Pastor, our technical producer, and then Lily, Ty- Lily Tyson, who is the senior producer of The Colin McEnroe Show, is the producer also of this episode. So we're going to conclude with uh, a conversation with a writer of fiction. Uh, Waiki Wang uh, is uh, an author whose latest book is Joan is OK. Uh, Joan is OK is about Joan, a Chinese-American attending physician in a Manhattan ICU whose brother, by the way, thinks she should get a promotion. Uh, and she has to explain, though, no, this is like, this is already a good job. Um, so uh, first of all, welcome to our conversation. Hi, Colin. Thanks for having me. So the novel is really fascinating. And um, but I think it's sort of worth m- mentioning that as you were wrapping up the original manuscript, uh, there was no pandemic. So there was no need to incorporate that in, into your novel. So explain kind of what happened when you you handed in the book. Right. So I had been spending, my first book was chemistry. And then I spent four years trying to write Joan. um, And I handed the entire manuscript in March 2020 with obviously nothing dealing with the pandemic in it. Um, Just my luck that by the end of March, things had looked very different. 
Um, and then it was sort of, um, a, I wouldn't say a complete rewrite, but a, a big rewrite that had to incorporate some of um, contemporary events since this is a contemporary novel. Um, and when I was picking an occupation for Joan, because it's always important to me for have to have female protagonists work in um, books um, like these, I picked the ICU because I thought, well, you know, no one really knows what goes on in an ICU. Um, this kind of be a cool field, an area for me to just write about. And it's so specific um, that when everything kind of came down, it was just harder to change everything about herself so that we had to sort of um, bring in the pandemic. It was it was inevitable in some ways. So, I mean, you brought in the pandemic, but I think also, I mean, this is sort of bad luck. In a way, it was also sort of good luck. I mean, or maybe you don't think about it that way, but that's a sort of weird way to think about it. But in a way, the the relevance, the significance, and the power of this narrative uh, amped up because all eyes were on it. And not only on the experience uh, of an ICU uh, attending physician, but also a Chinese American doctor, uh, and and in a way that keeps going. I mean, we're right now going through this whole question about the lab leak. Uh, I, I teach uh, a seminar uh, in poli sci, but I was there yesterday. We were talking about the whole lab leak thing, and oh, wow. and I've got a lot of Asian students, and they were yeah. all just saying this. You know, one of them said, "This isn't just about what happened. It's also how it gets interpreted and how it gets flung." out onto, onto us or people like us, people who look like right. us. And and, right. and that's an issue for Joan too, right? Mm, of course, yeah. I mean, I think about this lab leak thing and I'm just like, if you've ever worked in a lab to invent something this pervasive is actually incredibly hard. So sometimes I'm just like, lab science is so inefficient that for this to really happen, it just it would just be mind-blowing to me. You would get a huge science paper out of it. Um, but yeah, it's one of these things that um, Joan has to contend with um of kind of the you know the aftershocks of the pandemic and now that we're three years out i i think it's very much this the same thing you know we sort of want to sweep the pandemic under the rug but a lot of things happened immediately during the pandemic and afterwards that um i don't know give me pause about sort of my place in this country and assimilation and things like that um that i'm still thinking about and i know you know we're we're going back to normal but it's sort of like one of these things where um, Joan experiences maybe like the country having a tantrum and then now we have to go back to normal and pretend that that tantrum didn't really happen. Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know about back to normal either, because yeah. as I was saying to my student Victoria yesterday, it doesn't feel like we're entering a, a period in which China is going to be given the benefit of the doubt about anything. we got balloons now that people are upset right. about. We've got an, an incipient thing that feels like the old Cold War. So yeah. the, the, just, you know, there's going to be a natural, natural impulse in some people to take everything and weave it into that narrative, including the lap lake, right? Right, right. So um, just talk a little bit about the medical parts of this. How, um, I, I don't know, how keen were you to sort of figure out what was really going on with doctors in ICUs? Uh, was a lot of this imagined? Did you find physicians to talk to about this? Um, I did. Um, I, I was pre-med and then I got a doctorate in epidemiology. So I've been in hospitals for a really long time. Yeah. Um, and I, you know, shadowing, working in clinical research, I, you sort of know what a hospital is like if you've been in there for a few years. Uh, um, and what's happens when you're pre-med for a while is that now all your pre-med friends are doctors and that's the only thing they talk about, which is medicine. 
Um, and so even if you don't ask, they will tell you what it's like to be in an ICU if they've rotated in it or some of them are now ICU attendings um, and they kind of tell you their experiences. And as a novelist, sometimes I don't really even, I mean, I interview my friends sometimes, but oftentimes I just listen to sort of what they say about their daily lives. Um, and then I can kind of construct that world. So um, one detail about Joan is that she's really in love with her ECMO machines, um, which is this machine that helps clean your blood in the ICU. Um, and one of the things about ICU attending is that they really love their machines a lot, you know, sometimes maybe even more so than the people that are um, hooked up to them. Um, so that's something that um, I just saw as sort of like a characteristics of physicians working in this line of work that um, they have their tools, they have their lingo, they have their sort of things that they diagnose. Um, and that's what makes them so good at their jobs, but maybe not necessarily great as New York neighbors or things like that. <laughs> so I think this is probably going to be my, have to be my last question, unfortunately. But so this sure. book is in this book, COVID is kind of a bleeding wound. But yes. going forward, you're probably going to be writing about the scar, too. Have you really right. have you thought about that? Have you started to do that writing about I mean, obviously, we're not out of this. We're not out of the woods yeah. yet. But you're going to be writing about a scar instead of a, a fresh wound. How is that going to be different? Um, I think the pandemic will always play a role in how I set up the, you, you know, the characters I'm kind of working on. I'm working on book three right now. And some of it, it's happening after the pandemic. Um, it's about a couple who goes on vacation and sort of putting in that context of maybe this is the first break that they've had in a long time, or this is the first break that they've had with their families um, is important to me to incorporate that um, in there, but it won't necessarily be sort of this like frontline thing that um, I'm dealing with, contending with in Joan. But I, I do think it's on the work it will always be there. It's sort of like one of these things where, you know, it's like pre 9-11, post 9-11, pre the pandemic when we didn't know these things existed. And then post pandemic, now we're sort of ready for the next viral outbreak or whatnot, or, you know, triple vaccine or something like that. Um, so it's kind of like a shift in consciousness for these characters and what they might have to deal with um, moving forward as, you know, the world changes and geopolitics gets involved and, you know, things get a little bit crazier. Right. Well, we do have to stop there, unfortunately, but uh, this is fascinating stuff. Waiki Wang, uh, the author uh, whose latest book is Joan is OK. Thanks for being with us today. The rest of you, thank, thank you, you so much for listening. Thanks again, Waiki. And thanks to Lily Tyson and Kat Pastor. And we got to go. Keep your eyes fixed up above. Just let the fire burn away what you know and get ready to love. Cause everything is okay Even when it's not Even when it's not Everything is okay Everything is okay Even when it's not Everything is okay Even when it's not Even when it's not Everything